the Sunday Sermons Podcast. We start a new series today called 316. I want to be completely upfront with you guys here at the beginning. I'm hoping this is going to uh, help you remember some of the key ideas, but that's the only thing. The only reason we're using so many 316 verses. Let me explain. Uh, The whole Bible, everything that we now know as the Holy Bible, all 66 books, were completed and starting to be distributed and translated into other languages within about 80 years of when the church began. Uh, But it was all scrolls back then. It wasn't books. It wasn't until 1227 that there was a guy named Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who decided that there should be chapters and verses to help us find stuff better. So he created those. He's the one, that's where we got those. It's not part of the original text. The first translation to ever use chapters and verses from the get-go was the English translation created by John Wycliffe. Now you guys are all into history as much as me, so this, you're so excited. I see it in your eyes. Ah, let's go, more history, more trivia lesson. Let's do it. <clears throat> but seriously, I just want you to know, I don't believe in any kind of Bible secret codes that the numbers are not the thing. The text is the thing. The spirit speaking through the text is the thing. And I just want to say that out loud and everybody heard me, right? All right. But having said that, I also noticed several years ago as I was just reading through the Bible for the umpteenth time that for some reason, whenever you get to chapter 3, verse 16 of just about any book, it's a foundational truth. There's something really important there. And what do I mean by a foundational truth? Well, some of the verses in the Bible say things like, and Job had this many donkeys, this many camels, things like that. Every verse is important, but some of it isn't quite as important as others. Are you following me on this? Some of it's, and Jesus went to Capernaum. What he did in Capernaum, what he said in Capernaum is the big deal, okay? But for some reason, when you get to 316 in almost any book, it's something big. So I kind of had this list in my back pocket. This year as I was praying, asking God how he wanted us to unpack the idea this year that we are under the authority of Christ, that we live under the authority of his word, that we actually really truly submit to that in every way. What are some of the key truths we needed to explore? What are those? And that list kind of, I was like, oh. So looking down there, it's like, that's exactly the stuff that was already, all right, we're going to do it. So that's where 316 came from. And I just want you guys to know, there's no Bible code. I'm not asking you to go through the Bible and count words and come up with cool prophecies out of it. It's not where it is. What I do hope is on the other side of this, if you're going, where was that again? You're going to be able to find it really easily. Are you with me on this? Okay. Let's start with the most familiar one in the, in the Bible, I believe. Let's say it out loud together. And uh, I know we've all got it memorized in different versions, so let's read it off this one. This happens to be the ESV is the one I'm using today. It's not the only inspired word. It's just one good one. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And let's keep going to verse 17 as well. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How how many would agree this is pretty foundational? Okay, pretty foundational. But, 
but I think especially on the verses that are super foundational, it's important that we understand what the words meant to Jesus when he said them. Would you agree? Because here's the thing. There's two key words in here that really, really matter. One is believe and one is save. And I could use those words a bunch of different ways. For example, I could say, I believe it's a good idea to save 15% of every paycheck. And for what it's worth, I do believe that in the sense that I agree that that's a good idea. And I think that saving money is a good idea. But I would be lying to say that I save 15% of every single paycheck. And so in the biblical sense, I do not believe that. Do you understand what I mean? In the, in the biblical sense, to believe something means you do it. You act on it. You bet the farm on it. You get it done. I could say, I believe that motorcycles are the most amazing vehicles ever created by human beings. And that's true to me, but that's, that's me using believe like it's an opinion. That's my opinion. I also could say, the reason I don't have a motorcycle is because I want to save my marriage. <laughs> and that's using the word save in the sense that I want to preserve something I really care about. Neither one of those is how Jesus used those terms here. Here's what Jesus means by it. To him, believe means trust and obey. Both. Everything. To to believe means to trust and obey. By the way, let's say this together. We live under Christ's authority. Would you say that with me? We live under Christ's authority. Here's what that means. We don't just say we believe in Jesus. When Jesus says, whoever believes in me will have eternal life, he doesn't mean that we go, yeah, I agree. I think think it probably is Jesus who's the only way to God. It means you bet everything on that. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that's your opinion. Well, I think it's Jesus. Like me saying, I like motorcycles best. That's not what it means. It means I am betting my life and my eternity, my money, my marriage, my everything. I am betting everything that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. That's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when we say that he saves us, it means he rescues us from all the other alternative beliefs out there and he puts us on the path we were designed to follow. Are we tracking so far? All right. Again, some of this is foundational. Some, some of you guys have been swimming in this truth for forever. If somebody out there, it might be the first time. For all of us, we need to remember this is what it means. So in the Bible, believe means trust and obey. And the only way that God can accept us is through Jesus. I think it's really strange that one of the most common phrases in Christianity today in America is we try to get people to accept Jesus. Maybe it only sounds strange to me. Strange to me. I'm a, I'm a words guy, but it almost sounds like Jesus is like reject. He's like the kid that doesn't get chosen on the team in the playground. You know what I mean? Would you guys please accept Jesus? Would you please let him play? And that is absolutely not, not how the Bible presents it. 
If you just do a word search of accept throughout the Bible, almost every single time it's talking about God accepting us, an acceptable sacrifice, or how, God, how we need to approach God so that he could accept us. And the only way that happens is through Jesus. And that's what we just said out loud together. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's try that one more time. I think we got this one. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Hallelujah. That's it. It's through Jesus that God can accept us. Let's look at some scripture that talks about that, beginning with Luke 3.16. John is baptizing people. People are asking him if he's the Messiah, and he answers them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, looking back from the other side of Pentecost, the other side of the printed word of God and a bunch of other things we have that they didn't, we understand both of those terms a little better than they did. But just just so you know, the first time they heard that, the context of the Holy Spirit, all they knew about that was the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would come upon people and he would empower them to do stuff that they couldn't other do. Sometimes it was super strength. Sometimes it was extra amounts of courage. Sometimes it was the ability to prophesy. Sometimes it was a bunch of different things. But when God would tangibly move and you could tell the way the Old Testament writers would express that is that the Holy Spirit of God had come upon them. Does that make sense? And what John is saying is, I can help you repent I can help you confess your sins. I can help you tangibly start over, but Jesus can help you have the power of God actually change you. And fire is a pretty common symbol throughout the Bible and out here in life. Fire purifies and it restarts stuff. Remember all those fires in Gatlinburg several years ago? As horrific and terrible as that was, if you go look at those forests now, you can tell they're well on their way to being healthier and stronger than they ever were. Fire can do that. If you ever uh, purify something with fire, it burns all the extra stuff off and all you have is just the stuff you're looking, especially in metal, things like that. So they understood that this Jesus guy wasn't going to just acknowledge what they were doing. He was going to empower them to do something that only God can empower somebody to do. He would send the actual power of God into their lives and he would refine them in a way that was bigger and more powerful than anything they could generate. Does that sound foundational? That's super foundational. John 12, Jesus is saying, says this, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. First Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. How do we get transformed? How do we actually get to be able to see things from a spiritual perspective? Through 
The Holy Spirit is also correct, but we are saved through Jesus, through him. Is this tracking? Let's keep going. Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship, as in he accepts it, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's another more of this idea that we can only even get to God through his power and through the fire that he burns all the other stuff away. First Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through, let's say it together, through, we're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is what that means. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this dark world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then you will be able to know God's will, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. It's only through Jesus. We only can even approach God under the authority of Jesus Christ. You see such radical changes every time that really happens. Look at the disciples. Can you imagine like people who knew them before Jesus and people who knew them after? Talk about a story arc. Where are my literature people out there? You know what I'm saying? The change that people go through over the course of a great story. Peter and John both were known as hotheads when they first joined the team. Uneducated fishermen that just joined the team because Jesus said, follow them. And on the other side, there's some of the most wise and powerful and loving leaders. What in the world? Because Jesus transform them. Because following Jesus refined them like fire. Because following Jesus actually made the Holy Spirit of God come upon them and empower them to do things that they never could have done. And when you get to Acts 3.16, that's exactly what you're seeing. Acts 3 is the story where Peter and John are walking up to the temple and they are trying to just go and pray. And a beggar stops them and says, would you give us some money? And they say, hey, we don't have any money, but here's what we can do. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the guy does. He stands up and he walks and he starts dancing and jumping and leaping and praising God. Jumping and leaping and praising God. Jumping and leaping and praising. How many of you sing that song when you're a kid? Love that song. It's one of my favorite ones because we got to jump around. <clears throat> Back to it. So everybody's freaking out and they're going, what in the world? How did this happen? We've known this guy since he was born. He could never walk. He can ne- this, is, this is not somebody who's faking it. This is not somebody who's just trying to beg for no reason. Peter says, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, 
whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. It's also the people of God in the sense of the Israelites, the Jews. It's also the people of God, the people, spiritual descendants of Abraham through faith in God. It's all of the above in some ways, but it's especially Jesus Christ himself. It all hangs on Jesus Christ. And to live under the authority of Jesus is to acknowledge that. Jesus does not need us to accept him to have some sort of validity. Jesus doesn't need us to accept him so that he didn't waste his life. The only way for God to accept us is through Jesus. The only way for us to even have a chance to not only be forgiven, but to be completely different is through Jesus. That is a foundational, absolute, bottom line truth that we, that, that's where it all starts to actually live under his authority. 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Isn't that a wonderful name for Jesus? The mystery of godliness. It reminds us we're never gonna completely figure him out. We're never going to 100% understand everything about Jesus. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to follow him, period. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was, here's what we know for sure. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. It's real. How do we even know for sure that there is a God? Because Jesus showed up in history. How do we know for sure there's life after death? Because Jesus came back from it. How do we know for sure he's coming back? Because he kept all the other promises that were just as outlandish. Pretty sure he can keep this one. That's what it means to live under the authority of Jesus. It's to accept all of that so much that you literally bet your entire life on it. This is who I am. I am a child of God. And how did I get there? Through, there we go. Second thing, and there's only two points today. I hope I don't get fired. Preachers are supposed to have three. The second thing, we live under Christ's authority. The second is this, say it with me. We live in Christ's presence. We live under his authority and we live, say it one more time, we live in Christ's presence. Now this is where it gets amazing because we all know what this means. We know if you're under somebody's authority, you, 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 you know that and you try to follow that. But if they're right there, it's a whole extra thing, Right? Your mom or dad, if you're a kid or a teenager, you, you, you know that you better follow the rules as long as you're under the house roof, right? You, you know you got to do that. But if they're right there, you can bet you're following those rules. You, you know what I'm saying? 
You're not going to try anything when they're right there. We all know that the police of this country have the ability to uh, arrest us or, or make sure we go get locked up or something if we really mess up. And we all know that. And okay, that's, that's what it means to live in America. But if a policeman's right behind you, driving down the road, how many of you are really aware of that? <laughs> the presence. Even if you're doing the speed limit, you're, you're not doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with your car. You're good. But you're just looking in that rear view mirror the whole time because <laughs> he's right there, right? This is the beauty and the fear of what it means that we live in the presence of Jesus, He said, if we go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, teaching them to obey all the things he commanded. What's the last one? I will be with you always. Let's all say that together. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's right here. He's watching. He's here to empower us. Right here, right now. The full eternal life that Jesus died and rose and ascended to give us, it begins the very moment that we give our lives to him. But that's just the beginning. Then we get to start living in his presence. He empowers us and he works through us. Not only do we know this from that promise we just quoted and several other cool things he said, But he consistently used imagery that implied that he was actively involved in us. Remember John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me will bear much fruit. Remember that? You stay connected. There's so many. Here's a couple others. John 6, 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I used to always misunderstand that, especially as a kid. I always thought, well, why do I still get hungry? Because I know Jesus. That's not what it means. He's not, you're, you're not going to go hungry. You're not going to starve, especially spiritually. He's going to take care of you because he's actively involved in your life day after day. For them, in that day, bread meant food. If you have bread, the bread of life, that means the food that keeps you alive every single day. And Jesus himself quoted Deuteronomy and said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing. He's like, you're going to be not only fed by food, but you're going to be fed by me day after day after day. You can't starve that way. This is an ongoing process. He said in John seven thirty eight, whoever believes in me, whoever bets the farm on me, Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I used to misunderstand this one too. I was like, man, so I got to generate these rivers? No. How's river work? Who knows how a river works? Just raise your hand. You can correct me if I'm wrong. There's several people that know. But they start with a spring and then they flow down to the ocean, right? Okay. If a river of living water continually flows through you, that means you're connected to an undying spring. River isn't what generates that water. It's an always constant flow from a spring. Who's the spring? This is easy. 
I once heard about somebody in, a, in junior church. They were just kind of having a little trivia contest before they got to the serious part. And the, and the junior church leader said, what's gray and fuzzy and has a big bushy tail and eats nuts and lives in a tree? And one of the boys raised his hand and he goes, I know it's Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> But I'm making it as easy as possible on you. Today, the answers are almost all Jesus, okay? It really is Jesus. <laughs> Here's one of the craziest ones. John eleven twenty six. Jesus says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says that in the middle of the story of Lazarus. He says that to one of his sisters. I encourage you to read that last week. Some of you have read it many, many times. Some of you might not have. I hope you go back and reread it this time. But here's the short version. He's really good friends with this guy. Really good friends with his sisters. They're supporters of his ministry. Their their home is a place where he goes to stay. He and the disciples, whenever they come through, they know these people well. They've seen Jesus do countless miracles. They've seen all these things happen. And they send word to Jesus. Hey, guess what? Lazarus is sick. Could you come heal him? You'd think that would just be a no-brainer, right? And Jesus waits until the guy's been dead for four days before he shows up. And they come out and they express their anger to him. They express that hurt to him. They say, Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have even died. What in the world? What the heck? Right? And this is what he says. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? On the way to the grave, he says this. Can I just be just just completely frank with you guys? This is is hard for every truly believing Christian because we're all going to come through several spots like this where we're like, really, Jesus? What in the world? You have all this authority... And I believe that you're here with me right now, but I'm not seeing anything right this minute. This does not make sense. What is going on? I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but chances are all of us, or at least most of us, are in that spot either right now, or you just have been, or you're about to be. This is something that just happens to every Christian at some point. And it's at that moment that we decide, are we going to believe or not? The cool part of the rest of that story is he keeps walking. He gets to the side of the grave. He takes his time. He cries at the side of the grave, just like everybody else. But then he steps in and raises the guy back to life. He does something that only Jesus could do. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus. That's the hope that we have that there's something more going on in him than there is anywhere else we could ever look. I'd like you to help me read these worship verses here. I'm going to read the parts, they're kind of narration, and then I want you to read with me the things that everybody says together. We're about to wrap this up. I need you to just take this seriously. Imagine that we're all in heaven right now. Imagine that we're in the middle of this scene. 
and you're the elders or the, the angels or the, the tribes and nations or the whatever else. You're, you're, you're in the midst of this. And here's what we will get. Here's, here's why we're wrapping up with this today. Listen, because in heaven, we're going to get all this better than we'll ever get it down here. We're going to spend our whole lives trying to get it better and better down here, but in heaven, we'll totally get it. And seeing Jesus in his ultimate glorified form and actually being in his presence in a tangible way again, there's not going to be any way to respond other than this. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, all together, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom. Let's try that again. I'm sorry, I got ahead of the slides. I'll read it off the slide with you guys. Here we go. A thousand saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now I've lost my place here. Here we go. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You guys remember those Gatorade commercials from several years ago where the the slogan was, is it in you? You may remember those. I, I love those. I thought it was super effective. But you see somebody drinking green Gatorade and then they sweat green. You know what I'm saying? Or they drink red Gatorade and they sweat red. You could tell they were drinking it because it's like oozing out of them. Is it in you? Is it in you? If you live under the authority of Jesus, you really do. You really believe in him in the biblical sense. You are truly saved in the biblical sense. It affects every day of your whole life and all of eternity on the other side. You're going to know. Is he in you? Paul asked that question in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail to meet the test. I'm not guessing that any of you are missing the test. This is not me condemning anybody. I'm not saying, I bet you're going to fail. I'm thinking you're going to win. But I hope that all of us this morning are taking this word from Paul and saying, okay, I really need to examine myself. I need to know for sure. Can people tell? Can I tell? 
If people are driving behind me like I don't want a policeman to do, could they tell that I live under the authority of Jesus? If people follow me around, they listen what I say, they listen what I, they watch what I do, they watch how I treat people, how I treat my own family at home, can they tell? That's something for me to judge you, but that's for you to examine and see. Let's say this one more time. We live under Christ's authority. This is just true whether we like it or not, but believers like it and bet everything on it. I mean, all of us had to pay taxes, right? Hard season. Whether we like it or not, or we get all excited, let's go, let's support America. Or we're like, are you serious right now? This is highway robbery. Whatever you feel about it, we're under that authority. But Christians, we know that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But we say every day, I live under the authority of Jesus Christ. And if you're really doing that, it's going to ooze out of you. People will be able to tell. Let's say the second one together. We live in Christ's presence. Can you tell? Can other people tell? Just like if your mom's right there looking over your shoulder while you're typing on the computer. Can you tell? Is there power in your life? Is there power? Are you being refined and empowered in ways that nobody can do except Jesus? I'm not saying you're not. I'm not judging anybody. I'm asking you like Paul does to examine yourself. Are you experiencing that? Because it's available to you. That's what it means. This is foundational. This isn't next level, graduate level Christianity. This is bottom line, day one. This is what you're getting into, Christianity. To live under the authority of Christ and in his presence is what it's all about. We're going to wrap up with saying John 3.16 together. And then I'm going to offer the invitation. Same as we always do. You'll see that logo up. And just so I don't throw the slide people up, I just want to say what, what's going to happen. Just to make it as clear, because people get confused. There's no way in the Bible says there has to be an invitation at the end of every song. There's no way in the Bible says thou shalt sing a song at the end of every message. There's no way it says that. This is just a means to an end. This is just a way to give us a chance to let you have a chance to respond. That's all it is. But what we're inviting you to do is if God is leading you to give your life to Jesus, to make some other kind of big decision, join our church or literally anything, or if you just want to pray with somebody, you can go to the very back and be really private about it. You can come to the front and be really public about it. You do that while we're singing. Everybody else stands up. We're all saying these words and meaning them. If you need to do something extra while we're singing, just do it. Make sense? But would you stand now? And let's say this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him.